0: Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. I had a friend when I was growing up in um, high school days and was involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And this guy was a great believer, really had a heart for the Lord, uh, was found faithfully in church on every Sunday, uh, had a voracious uh, desire and appetite for the word. Every time there was a prayer opportunity, a prayer meeting, something of that sort, he was there. He was just one of those really faithful guys. And yet, in the entire time that I knew him, I recognized that this guy dealt with a degree of shame. Now, in his case, the shame wasn't necessarily because of anything that he had done or failed to do, but you see, he came from a household where his mother had died years before when he was younger, leaving the surviving parent, his father, with himself, a younger brother, a younger sister. Uh, Dad was kind of a rough-and-tumble kind of character, uh, had been a truck driver, inconsistent when it came to work, so... The house wasn't in a very nice neighborhood the lawns were never well kept the house was never well maintained the kids were never well dressed nor never well fed though they were all decent human beings there always seemed to be kind of this cloud of shame that this friend of mine carried even as a believer uh because he couldn't invite people over to his home he felt embarrassed at times because His father, being kind of the rough-and-tumble guy, would use uh, foul language and things of that sort, so there was a degree of embarrassment. And um, I always wondered, boy, what kind of a cross is that for us to bear as believers when sometimes we deal with the, the pain of worthlessness or rejection or just downright shame? Well, my guest tonight has written a book that tackles this very issue, Uh, Down through the years, he's authored quite a number of best-selling books, uh, including When People Are Big and God is Small, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, Depression, Stubborn Darkness, many others, including his latest book entitled simply Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And Ed Welch, great to have you on the program tonight.
2: Craig, uh, great to be with you, too. I really really enjoy... about this particular topic, and um, I'm looking forward to our time together.
0: You mentioned to our listeners that you are a licensed uh, psychologist and faculty member of the um, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, a highly respected organization, and you've you've tackled an issue here that kind kind of rides down below the surface, I think, in the lives of a lot of believers for different reasons. Now, I shared it my opening remarks—the the shame, the sense of shame that this friend of mine had for so long—that sent that kind of foreboding sense of of, of of guilt about this, and never knowing quite what to do. I mean, is this something that we need to maybe right out the gate differentiate between guilt and shame, or the, the sense that we'll get under some some circumstances of conviction of the Holy Spirit? Kind of delineate that for us. If yeah, you would, I think Ed.
2: that's an important one. But let me go. Let me go back a little bit. You're 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 wrestling with the question how how big is this issue and and if we go to scripture it it, it seems to advertise shame is in, in many ways the the premier human struggle you know, so you know you have genesis they were naked and without shame well that's just you know it, it's like a it's like a the, the story being given away right at the beginning where you know, it's setting us up to see. Okay, then they were naked and with shame, and, and really the entire Bible becomes a, a, a wrestling with this question: What do I do with this sense of shame? So I, I think you're you're saying something very very important at the outset with your illustration. Well, here's a guy who was struggling with it. But if if Scripture is true, what we'd expect is that we're going to find we're going to find touches of this. In every single person, and, th- and some of those words you use to describe shame, they—boy, I would imagine just about every American would say them. I feel like a failure sometimes. I feel worthless. Who, happened, who hasn't said that? Um, I feel unlovable. Uh, and but here's here's the sort of the twist that shame gives unlovable. Uh, I'm unlovable, but other people aren't. You know, other people are lovable, but I'm not lovable. There's something. There's something especially not quite right about me. That's mm. un, it's under those experiences that we find this this thing that Scripture calls shame.
0: And as you point out, this is something that we really have struggled with since the beginning of mankind. I mean, we, we've got that illustration very early in the garden uh, with the creation of mankind. There he was, there she was, in our in our uh, complete glory. Uh, there was never any sense of guilt or shame uh, Until then, of course uh, of The eating of the knowledge of the tree of, of good and evil And suddenly, man in his nakedness Went from that state of being without shame To suddenly burdened down with shame And this is something that, of course, is, has followed us to one degree or another ever since
2: And, and if, we, if we follow the, the storyline in those first chapters of Genesis We find this, this very concise Picture of shame, and it seems to revolve around a triad of three things. Well, first of all, you feel naked. Obviously, you you feel exposed. You feel like you are being seen. Somebody, others can see you, and you're not quite right. That would be one experience of it. You just feel exposed. A second is, and you you find this in the Genesis story. You feel like an outcast. You feel like you don't belong anymore, and I would say that that's, in many ways, that's really the key experience. There's something about you that you don't fit in, and I can remember one this 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 moment I had in high school where, of course, I like everybody else in high school, felt like I never fit in, but then I'd have these conversations with my friends, and I found these guys who were, you know, you know great guys who who just seemed like they had everything. They didn't feel like they fit in. You know, you begin to realize, does anybody feel like they belong? And it's an elusive human experience. The other part of the experience is you feel unclean. There's something dirty about you. And, and Craig, I think that's where that link between guilt and shame can get a little fuzzy. Where, okay, you feel dirty. You feel bad. Well, I think, I think many of us have this instinct that if we feel bad, it means we've done something bad. We've done something wrong. And, and we, we tend to look for something to confess. And, and certainly shame can occasionally be, because we have done something we feel like is so wrong it's it's a different kind of sin or a different kind of wrong than other people have committed and so there's that sense we you know well for example i i uh, drove to work today and i expect if today wasn't like any other day i rolled through a stop sign or two and ends up breaking the law and i'm not trying to say i'm proud of it but but I'm willing to acknowledge it because I'm I'm thinking, I'm hoping <laughs> that that you rolled through a stop sign today too. And and, and so you're you're shaking your head and say, yeah, 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 I'm with you, I know I know what you're talking about. But there there are other kinds of wrongs that we could talk about where nobody's shaking their head, they're just sort of looking at us. So occasionally the the bad that we feel is a result of, of what we've done. We just feel like what we've done is very different and, and more disgraceful than anything anybody else has done. The other, the larger part of shame, which you've already spoken about, is, is we feel bad. We feel unclean, but it's, it, you, can, you can confess all day, and it's not going to make any difference. Um, it's because we are associated with things or people that have done unclean things to us. And, and certainly, you know, you, you've mentioned one, just associations with poverty and not having anything. Well, there's the literal sense of feeling worthless and not fitting in. The, the other, other illustrations that, that probably most of us would immediately think of would be some kind of sexual violation where you have been, it's not what you've done. You feel, obviously you feel dirty, but you can't confess that dirtiness because it's a dirtiness that somebody else has thrown on you or somebody who's been divorced. Um, same thing if they were on the bad end of of divorce where where the spouse left them there there's a sense that there's something wrong with me there's something bad about me and it's not because of what they've done it's because of what has been done to them so so shame really is the much larger struggle if uh, than guilt guilt can be one part of shame but shame is a much much wider experience
0: Tackling the topic today as we're joined by best-selling author Edward Welsh, a look at Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: We're visiting today with best-selling author Ed Welsh. He is a licensed psychologist and faculty member of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And uh, amongst the number of titles that he's written down through the years, his latest, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Let's um, maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic, yet, as we help folks understand sometimes the difference between what maybe can be good shame in letting us know, and maybe I'm not using the right phraseology here, but letting us know that there's something amiss in our lives that we need to address versus the kind of shame that's kind of brought upon us typically by circumstances that oftentimes are either outside of our control or or had nothing to do with our own actions.
2: Um that's a great question. Uh, I guess I guess I tend to think about it this way. I think of of guilt has a bit more benefit than shame, <laughs> where where guilt, you know, our conscience can remind us, hey, I did wrong, and it's time for confession. Shame is it, it tends to be much more renegade, and and I, I I I don't find really that often in Scripture. Occasionally, you find it. Um, but but very infrequently do you find in Scripture the encouragement for people to experience shame. There were times where Israel was just completely hard hearted and, and and the Lord essentially says, Shame on you. Uh, you. you have you have no shame anymore. But but when, when when I see the Lord dealing with individual people, especially when we race up to the New Testament and see Jesus in action, all we see is just this incredible compassion for those who wrestle with shame. So so I, I think the scripture is much more interested in that question. Okay, here's this here's this soul deadening struggle that human beings can have. What is the way through it?
0: Working through that is is a process, isn't it? And it's a process that can be different for everybody. And and I would imagine a lot of it comes down to. Flipping the the perspective, in other words, oftentimes that shame is based on how we perceive others and how they perceive us. Do we then have to kind of move beyond that to begin to see the way God perceives us?
2: Uh, boy, absolutely. I, I think you you just you just hit hit on something very important that 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 you know I want to learn these things as we're speaking as well and. And as we understand the way God works, it's not oh, oh, all of a sudden, in a half hour we're going to be free of shame. it's it's what we're you know what we're looking for is just maybe just a little glimmer, you know, just something that that that, that, that approximates hope okay? and just something that surprises us a little bit where we say, "Oh, I wasn't expecting that, I wasn't expecting. You, our God, the Holy God, to have this kind of concern for for outcasts—that's that's what we're looking for. Just in, a, in one sense, to be intrigued by a God who doesn't doesn't conform to our expectations. And and one of the things you said when you talked about the phone lines being down is, is probably relevant to right now too. Where in a sense, what, what the Lord says, I think, is 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 listen. Okay, just just sit down and and listen. And which is so unusual for that, that's surprising in and of itself. For people who wrestle with shame, they feel like they have to do something. They have to wash themselves more. They have to, they have to somehow be a fail, a, a success before they're able to, to be able to appear before God and other people. But, but what you have in scripture is a God who says, listen, listen to, listen to stories of people who experience shame and watch, watch my affection for them. And, and then story after story in Scripture, that's, that's what we receive.
0: You know, what struck me so interesting, going back to my, my central example earlier on of this friend of mine who had grown up in, you know, less than ideal circumstances, I, I always took note of the fact, Ed, that here was someone who, because he was not a person of, of great wealth or of status, had a very easy time in showing a sense of compassion toward others. Uh, here was someone who would volunteer during the holidays at a soup kitchen to help feed the needy during Thanksgiving and, give, giving and Christmas and so forth, um, who, even though he had limited means, uh, was someone who tithed frequently, was was eager to do something to help somebody else mm. out who was in need. His His own life experience gave him the ability to see need in others, and yet— When he turned that mirror on himself, he saw someone that was a loser, who was worthless, who didn't feel comfortable going to certain events because he couldn't dress as nice as the others. It's amazing how there was a degree to which the shame taught him things about others that enabled him to become more understanding, more caring, more compassionate. And yet, as much as it benefited him to a degree in that sense, Mm -hmm. never benefited his own Viewpoint of himself,
2: but it's a it's a good starting point. What you're saying, where where, where people who struggle with shame, uh you know, maybe we can put it this way: an outcast can recognize other outcasts. Mm, okay. They they have keen eyes for other outcasts, and 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 that seems to be the story of the New Testament. Where here comes here comes the king, and and you know, he's, you know his birth is announced with angels and prophecies, but. But if you're an outcast and you start reading through the very beginning of the New Testament, what you say is, hold it, here's, I recognize this guy. Okay. He doesn't belong either. He's on the outs as well. Here's a per, I recognize him. Is it possible that he might even recognize me? And, and, and then the the, the the greatest indignity, they go down to Egypt. It's, you know, you know, Egypt is just a horrifying thing for a Jew. That's, you know, that's where they were enslaved. and. And so he spends a a couple early years in Egypt. Episode after episode, you look at you look at the Messiah, and 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 an outcast is able to spot Jesus better than anybody else because he is like them. And then then when you then when you watch his ministry take shape, it's it's the most peculiar thing. I mean, if you want to have a reputation, you go among the movers and the shakers and the influencers. And, and, and Jesus was immediately on the outs, and he was on the outs with the mover and shakers because, here, you, know, you remember that original complaint. Hey, he can't be one of us because he eats with sinners mm-hmm. and, and tax collectors. He, he eats with people who are on the outs. He eats with the unclean, which makes him unclean himself. And, and that was, that was the original rap against Jesus, that he associates himself with the outcast. And, and so, you know, to, to use your friend as the illustration, what we're, you know, what we're doing is, okay, you got it, you recognize another outcast. So watch him, watch, you know, watch him walk through life. Now, now notice this, do you see that that outcast, Jesus Christ, he makes a beeline toward you? Okay. And and most people who really wrestle with shame is sort of their full-time job. They they don't believe it, and and I think well you know the, the scripture goes on and says well let me tell you some more stories and let me tell you some more stories and let me tell you some more. But at some point I think those who wrestle wrestle with shame, they they're going to have to do something. So in in a sense the Lord says hear the stories just listen, and then he says okay now respond, and and the response can be as simple as. Amen. Okay, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I believe you even pursue me as an outcast. I believe that you, and here's here's a term that Scripture uses, you turn your face to me. And when somebody turns their face to you, it's this, it's this sign that you belong to them. It's a sign of their pleasure and their goodwill toward you. At some point those who wrestle with shame they're going to have to not only hear these beautiful words but they're going to have to say yes i believe them i believe that they're words that 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 the lord says to me
0: we're so comfortable sometimes living in kind of that pain because it's something that's very familiar that sense of worthlessness and inferiority or living with rejection humiliation Failure And certainly a lot of people these days in light of what's transpired in the economy, uh, people who have worked hard at their career um, and achieved a modicum of success and then suddenly, because of no fault of their own, lost a job, lost a home, have not been able to regain employment, and they're walking around with that sense of shame. Let's talk about that angle when we come back and turning about perspective on this topic. uh, Seeing this as God sees us, seeing ourselves as God sees us, shame interrupted. Best-selling author Edward Welch with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: We've got best-selling author with us today, Ed Welch. His latest book is called Shame Interrupted. How God lifts the pain of worthlessness and rejection. Got a number of best selling books to his credit. He also serves as a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the notable Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. But dealing with this topic, and you know, if you're someone who walks around, who lives with, who is an intimate, of shame, that sense of rejection and worthlessness and weakness, humiliation, failure. And boy, certainly that, that sense of failure, I think, is something that so many people these days, Ed, in the wake of what's been going on with the economic decline, have really had to struggle with. What kind of advice, what kind of insight can you offer to somebody who's who's walking around with that kind of shame, lost the job, lost the house, they feel like they're a failure at caring for their family, and yet, what do they do?
2: Uh, there's... There, there's nothing unique to this particular era in how we measure who we are by how much we make and 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 I don't live in the Bay Area but but I would think that it would be only be more obvious in in the Bay Area there's nothing unique to that because I think you found the same thing in the New Testament and because the you know the poor they were they were the ones who were literally were worthless and um, and you know that's that's a you know, prominent way we measure our worth. What's our income? What's the status of our job? And and, and so I think there there are a couple of things that that Scripture does. What well, the, the Jesus does. The the first thing is he says, hey, this is not a mirage. It's not simply you love money so much and you love your reputation. Uh, Jesus is is acknowledging that poverty and and financial difficulties are truly hard thing. And the hard things that, 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 that can be experienced shamefully before the community. And and then you keep your eyes open in the scripture. And and so here, Matthew chapter five, for example, it's you know, one of one of the the early discourses that that we have from Jesus. And here's how it starts. <laughs> you know, blessed are the poor. Mm. Blessed are the poor now now that 's not going to make people out of a job feel really you know real, real nice all of a sudden, but it, it it should capture our attention just a little bit <laughs> where once again it 's as if is as if Jesus is aiming for the outcast and the shamed that 's they are his people and and so so it 's very intentional that he starts out the beatitudes by saying blessed are the poor he 's He's showing how things are not the way they seem. That those who are outcast are those are the people of the living God. They are the ones who belong ultimately to the King. And, and what does he say? I think that's the one where he says, "Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven." And again, it's you know, like you said earlier, this is a process, um, and, and nobody's going to go away saying, "Oh, this is okay. Great, my shame is all done now, and I, I feel fine about not having work." It, it's,
0: Is One of the big um, wedges, though, that we need to address here is to understand that in this process, ultimately, um, without regard to what the source might be of our shame, sometimes it's controllable, a lot of times it isn't, to Mm -hmm. ultimately understand that each and every one of us were bought with a price and that there is much that can be said about that that ultimate and enormous uh, sacrifice that Christ paid for us uh so that in and through that sacrifice that 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 enormous pearl of great price, as scripture says, uh, we can learn to, to to see our identity as he sees our identity and be able to shed that sense of shame after a while. I, I think
2: what we're saying is that we we tend to think that the work of Christ on the cross is for forgiveness of sins in the narrowest sense, but but you know, here's the problem: you go into the courtroom, and and the judge says you're you're not guilty, and you're forgiven. You leave the courtroom, and you still feel disgusting. Well, it, you know, in some ways, the the verdict doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You feel you still feel like a disgrace. I, I think what we're what we're what we're moving toward is what happened at the cross is much bigger than we will ever ever imagine. And and in in that forgiveness of sins, we had been given Christ Himself. And, and, and 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 we and and here's shame is about associations. Are you associated with your poverty? Are you associated with the person who abused you? Uh, are you associated with your sins? Well, what, what Jesus does at the cross is he is he snips all those old associations and he says you are you are now associated with me. And and so you know there's that you know, wonderful passage in Peter. You are chosen. You know, this is these are all words specifically to those who wrestle with shame a chosen people you're chosen okay a royal priesthood you're rich uh, a holy nation you're 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 even more than clean you're holy and then that 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 thing that peter says a people belonging to god a people belonging to god that's all part of the package of of the gospel of christ the, the gospel is for our guilt and the gospel is for our shame. Isn't it
0: interesting, too, I think of that passage, the people belonging to God, people that God calls having been set apart, so often we think of ourselves in the negative sense of having been set apart as being an outcast um, and so forth, and yet to understand that there is another type of being set apart, called by his name, paid for by his blood, where now, all of a sudden, we can understand that that being somebody different than the rest can actually be something very special.
2: It's it, 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 it's it's amazing the way the scripture uses the same kind of words. Um, yeah, you're set apart. Now it's a set apart like you're okay. You're on the traveling baseball team. Okay, <laughs> now you're set apart. You're you're in this elite organization. Now you're set apart where you are absolutely you are the one who is known by name by the king. So. So it's a set-apart, but it's a set-apart that warms our soul and, and says that we, you know, that, here's, here, here, this seems to be the very hub of Scripture where, where the Lord says to us in Christ, I am yours and you are mine. We are people belonging to God. That's what we're set-apart for.
0: Ultimately, and the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. For those that have been eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon that say, boy, you guys have really nailed it. You are articulating exactly where I'm at. How do I begin getting on this road to understand that I can go from that sense of being an outsider, an outcast, to understand what it means to take on the mantle of being set apart in his name? How does that process begin?
2: I, I hate to seem self-aggrandizing and and, and talking about my own book, but but that shame interrupted book is it, it's really looking at, it's basically just looking at scripture, but looking at it through the question, what do I do with my shame, and, and just watching these beautiful words unfold. So 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 that you know that can be sort of a, a coach, a friend, if you will. Just to help people have eyes to see how Scripture does speak to shame over and over again. And and, and and once you once you see it, once you're able to see those beautiful words, then you don't need the help as much and you can just jump into scripture and see them. But going back to I think what you said earlier, it's just allow that little little nugget of hope to just settle in, okay? That that maybe our God says things to our sense of disgrace and worthlessness that is much more than we ever imagined before, just to have that hope. That's what a great place to start that would be.
0: Indeed so. And and hope is, I think, an an internal and important word uh, that can be a central starting point of our focus. You know, when blame shows up on the doorstep, uh, we're having that sense of shame. Uh, We feel like we're worthless. We've been rejected. We're outcast. Um, To begin to incorporate God's viewpoint on who we are. Uh, and to begin to see ourselves, not necessarily through how we perceive others see us, but rather how we should understand God sees us, is the important difference when it comes to shame interrupted. The new book, by the way, which, as we mentioned before, um, is uh, published by New Growth Press. And uh, you can get more information online at newgrowthpressbookstore.com or through any Bay Area bookstore. And our thanks to best-selling author Ed Welsh for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this re-lo- love relationship with the Lord and He has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we want to be, uh, don't we want to be articulate about um, what He's done in our life? And how we can change somebody else's life too? While well, certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people when it comes to the matter of, of sharing their faith or evangelism get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same. Written by Mark Middleberg, the book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight.
1: Great to be with you.
0: I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, are, are very common questions to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base, every Christian would feel comfortable in answering, but obviously a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case.
1: Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should, but the, the real truth is a lot of us uh, grew up with the Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great, but when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is you know, being taught that this is true your whole life, and, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, "Yeah, but how do you know?" And you know, you believe the Bible. It's full of contradictions. It's based on myths. It's you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. So that's really the spirit of this book is to say these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer we asked a thousand christians you know what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-christian and these are the top 10 questions that came up so let's get ready because if we feel ready then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God.
0: Now, for many years, you served as Evangelism Director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, As you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, there seemed to be a commonality um, over intimidation by some of these questions, and I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism, where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them, uh, and then, too, maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy, where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in, in, in speaking to some of these questions.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think, uh, again, I think sometimes as churches, we're a lot better at teaching, especially young people, teaching them what to believe but not why it's true. And so a lot of young people grow up le- learning the creeds, learning Bible verses, uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers. But again, I-, I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes where we say, okay, let's let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or I'm going to... Be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they, they really took to it because they, they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our side. We we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared.
0: There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what at the time was an increase in, in how should I phrase this, a, a debate, really, over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a, a literal bodily, resurrection of Jesus Christ, or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And, and it, it was a, a, a very big eye opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true?
1: I think it's very true. And I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a, in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, I, my, my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say we just need to do a little more preparation. Let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation.
0: And this, Mark, I, I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists.
1: Absolutely. I, I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go to way you know, go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well.
0: So very much a double-edged sword, cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg. a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX.